So this evening we're beginning a new series going through the book of Hebrews. And Hebrews is an incredible book. It's, it's full of rich theology and, and encouragement and a lot of, of faith in there for us. And I encourage you that as we go through this study, read through the book of Hebrews with us. You could read a chapter a day. It's only 13 chapters. You could read a chapter a day and just keep reading through it. And by the time we're done this series, you'd have read through the book of Hebrews five or six times and you will be thoroughly just in grossed in the theology and the teaching in Hebrews. Or if you want to, you could read one chapter a week. There's 13 chapters. I have 13 messages planned out. Uh, and so you could go along right with us and read one chapter a week and still get a lot, of, a lot from the book and learn as we go. So read through the book as we go through here. Now, as you'll notice, as we go through the book of Hebrews, that there is one theme that runs through the entire book. One theme that goes through the entire book of Hebrews that all 13 chapters can be summed up with, and it's this. Jesus is better. Better than what? Better than everything. Better than your family. Better than your possessions. Better than your life on earth. Jesus is better than everything. Jesus is better than anything we could ever want or anything we could ever imagine. Now, the book of Hebrews, it's a, it's a letter to Jewish believers in the first church. There's no specific church given. So it's not written to like the church at Corinth or the church at Galatia, the church at Ephesus. It's just written to, written to the church. And so this letter would be passed around from city to city and church to church and believers would read it. They would copy it to make sure they could keep a record of it. And they would study it and they would learn from this letter that was written to them. And it was written out of concern for the people in the church. The writer of the book of Hebrews is urging the listeners, is urging those who are reading it to commit their life completely to Jesus Christ. See, these new believers, they, they had trusted Christ as their Savior. They begun began to walk with him and, and began to, to grow in their spiritual walk, but then things got tough. Persecution came. And sometimes we like to criticize the first church because all they suffered persecution and got weak in their faith. But they weren't being persecuted like we're persecuted, where people, you know, if we say, say something, they, they mock our Christianity. Or if we say Merry Christmas, don't tell me that. It's happy holidays. You know, we're not, we're like, oh, I'm being persecuted for my faith. No, you're not. These people were, were burned alive for trusting Jesus. They were crucified. They were murdered. They were some of them were, 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 had their, were hung, had their heads cut off, dragged behind animals so they were dead, beaten to death. Their families abandoned them. They lost all their possessions. So they suffered. We say they suffered persecution. They seriously suffered persecution. So we can't get, get on a high horse, and, high, high horse and condemn them for giving up when they just saw their dad get burned alive trying to walk away from the faith. But the writer is trying to encourage them. They had loved ones that were suffering. They had friends that were leaving the faith. Or maybe they were just struggling with normal temptations of life and they were confused and they didn't understand why. They believed that once they accepted Christ as their Savior, all the temptations would fall away and they would be sinless and not have any concerns anymore, not have any struggles anymore. And they're, they're looking at their life and going, I'm still dealing with temptations and sin and I don't understand what I'm going through. 
or they were really beginning to understand what being a Jesus follower meant, and there were some things they didn't understand. They didn't quite grasp the teaching that Paul and the apostles were giving them. Some of them, they didn't understand or really like the hard theology of sanctification and obedience. They thought, I can deal with this Jesus loves me stuff. You know, that's fine. Jesus loves me. I'll accept him as my Savior. Boom, I'm done. But all this, hey, you've got to give up this stuff, and you've got to live a holy life, and you've got to be holy like God is holy. That stuff's a little, a little hard to do. And so they struggled with the theology. And maybe because of the pain, maybe because of the frustration, maybe because of the confusion, they began to lag behind in their spiritual growth. And that's something that still happens in the church today, in our culture. There are people that are following Jesus, and they thought when they accepted Christ as their Savior, they began following Jesus, that their life would be just a carefree life. They thought accepting Jesus as their Savior meant their life would be, would be peace and love and butterflies and unicorns and rainbows. And it's not. It's hard. There's struggles. There's trials. There's temptation. And maybe you're here and, and you're struggling with your faith. Maybe your marriage isn't getting better since you came to Christ. Maybe it's getting harder. Maybe it's getting worse. Maybe your spouse isn't getting closer to Jesus, but they're getting further and further away. Maybe the temptations that you struggled with before you became a follower of Christ, maybe they didn't fall away. And if anything, you've got even more temptations you're struggling with. You think, man, I came to Jesus with this temptation, and now I've got all these that I'm dealing with as well. And I don't understand why Jesus isn't just taking away the temptation, why he's not just helping me not live a life of sin. Maybe walking with God isn't getting any easier for you. It seems harder and harder to have a consistent fellowship with God. Maybe you're lonely. Maybe you became a follower of Christ and you joined a community of believers and thought, well, now I'm finally going to find acceptance. I'm finally going to find friends and, and love and everything I've been looking for, but you're, you're still lonely. Or maybe you're hurt. Maybe you have pain and you're broken and that's a hard place to be as a child of God. God loves you. He's your father. He's, he's there to protect you and care for you and, and provide for you. And why would he allow this, this pain into your life? So he should protect you from that. And, and it's hard to walk with God when you're hurting. It's hard to walk with God when you're lonely. It's hard to walk with God when you struggle. And that's what the Hebrew believers were dealing with. And so like them, you've begun to lag behind in your spiritual growth. And that's what the book of Hebrews is addressing. He's saying, don't give up. Jesus is better. He's better than the pain. He's better than the loneliness. He's better than the hurt. He's better than the frustration. And he's better than anything you think you are missing. Commit completely to him because he's better than anything else you could ever commit to. And faith dominates the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 11, we'll get there in about 11 weeks, uh, it's the, the hall of faith where they look back at some of these great heroes of the faith from the Old Testament. And so faith dominates the book, and faith is not something you always feel in the present. Faith isn't something you always feel as you're going through struggles. Faith is acting now in a way you know you'll be glad you did later. And that's what the book is all about. 
Hebrews is a very difficult book to understand at times. William Barclay, he calls it the most difficult book in the entire New Testament. And the writer of the book of Hebrews is anonymous. We don't know who the human author is. People have said that it's Barnabas. Others have said Apollos wrote the book because the language is eloquent and the Bible says that Apollos was an eloquent writer. Others said it was Paul because it's got a lot of Pauline theology in it, which you need to understand it's not Pauline theology, it's God theology written through Paul. But others attribute it to Luke or say maybe Timothy wrote the book. I'm going to tell you right now who I believe wrote the book of Hebrews. Definitively, the Holy Spirit. Doesn't matter what human instrument he used. God wrote the book. We don't know what human instrument he used, and we don't need to know because it's irrelevant. This is a letter from God the Father to his children who are struggling, who are hurting, who have pain, who have heartache, and who are confused in what's going on in their life. What we, need to, what we do know is that the book was regarded as authoritative in the first church from the very beginning. As soon as the first church received it, they didn't even know who the author was, but it was an authoritative letter that they used and cherished and looked at. And so with all that introduction, how does the writer of Hebrews introduce the book? Well, look in verse number one. God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets... Think about all the ways that God spoke to man in the Old Testament. He revealed himself through visions, through dreams. He, he spoke through angels from time to time. He spoke audibly out of burning bushes and out of the top of mountains. He whispered out of the whirlwind. He wrote on walls in the book of Daniel. He spoke through donkeys he inspired worship songs and poetry. In all these ways, God spoke to man in the past. So the writer's beginning saying, hey, think about all the ways that God used to speak to man. Think about all the different methods and, 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 and things that God used to, to get his word to mankind. The incredible ways that he would use to speak to man. Look at verse number two has in these last days spoken unto us by his son. See, what the writer's saying here is God used to speak to man in a lot of creative and, and interesting ways. He, he had animals talk to people. He had, had prophets come to him. He spoke in visions and dreams and all the way right on walls with invisible hands. And man, God just was incredibly creative in how he spoke to man in the Old Testament. But now he doesn't speak to us that way. Now he speaks to us by his son. Now in the Greek, that phrase by his son literally is translated in his son. It's not proper English, but it's exactly what happened. The previous prophets gave the word of God. Jesus is the word of God. The previous prophets spoke the word of God. Jesus is the living Word of God. He spoke in his son. The writer also tells us that God used Jesus to speak in these last days. This, what the writer is saying, is God's final revelation to man. 
See, the Bible is broken up into three ages. The first is the creation age and the fall of man age. The second age is the age of Israel and the law. And the final age is the age that Jesus came. It's the final age. So when Jesus came to earth, was born in a manger, that began the final age. We are living in the last day. So what the writer is saying is, hey, Jesus, God used to speak in all these incredible ways, but now he only speaks through Jesus and he's done talking. That means when you come to a Mormon and they say, oh, well, the Bible's great, but then God later on spoke to uh, Joseph Smith through the angel Moroni and gave him the golden tablets. And we have a new revelation. No, we don't. We don't have a new revelation. This is the final revelation of God. When you talk to Jehovah's Witnesses and say, oh, well, yeah, God, he had the Bible, but now he speaks through man and he speaks to the Watchtower Society. No, he doesn't. This is the final revelation of God. He's saying God used to speak in all these ways, but now he's speaking this way and he's done speaking. He ever talks to somebody and says, God gave me a new revelation. No, he didn't. Because he's done. He's already spoken everything he's going to speak. We are in the final age until he comes to receive his bride. But then continue looking at verse number two. Whom he hath appointed heir of all things. Now he starts to show how Jesus is superior to all the prophets. Jesus is the heir of of all things. So that means is everything we see is coming to him. You know, if you ever worked at a company where the boss's son was working and you were working for him, but the boss's son worked there too, he wasn't really a hard worker. He was just learning the ropes because everything you saw was coming to him. So he didn't have to work quite as hard. You had to slave away and to work real hard, but the boss's son, it was all coming to him anyway. So what he's saying here is, hey, Jesus is the heir of everything. Everything we see is coming to him. So Jesus is the heir. All the prophets, all the angels, everything that happened beforehand, they were just servants. Jesus is the one it was all created for. Everything God created, everything God did on earth was for Jesus. The prophets were pointing to something. Jesus is what they were pointing to. He has always been the point. But continue in verse number two. By whom also he made the worlds. Jesus is the creative force that God used to create everything we see. And sometimes we, we, we don't understand how incredible creation really is. We look at creation as, oh man, the mountains are so beautiful. Yeah, they are, but that's not all the creation. You ever looked at the universe? You can't see it all. But everything that was created was created by Jesus. And look at verse number three. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the, uh, by the word of his power. See, that is a huge distinction between Jesus and the prophets. What, what other prophet could you say that about? What other prophet could you say, hey, he created everything and he upholds everything and he's the brightness of the glory of God? You can't say that about anybody or anything except Jesus. Jesus is better than all the prophets and all the angels. See, everything you see, everything we experience, Jesus created it and he upholds it and he keeps it together with his power. Have you ever really stopped and tried to understand the massiveness of creation? Our solar system that we, our planet lives in, 
<coughs> our solar system has a diameter of 7.5 billion miles. If you were to try to drive across it at 65 miles an hour, it would take you 13,172 years to get across. That's a long road trip. I don't like going four hours away. But that's how big our solar system is. There are over 100 billion solar systems in the Milky Way galaxy alone. And that's the galaxy our solar system is a part of. So our solar system is 7.5 billion miles across. There are over 100 million, 100 billion solar systems in the Milky Way galaxy, and there are over 50 billion galaxies in the entire universe. There are countless of billions of stars and planets in the sky, and most of them we can't see. And Jesus created every single one of them. He holds every single one of them, and he keeps them together with his hands and his power. Any other prophet could never come close to that. The writer says that Jesus is the brightness of his glory. You ever tried to look at the sun without sunglasses on? I know we all have. We've all done that. We've all oh, look how bright the sun is. It hurts your eyes. It blinds you because of the radiance of it. The radiance hurts your eyes. The core of the sun is a high-pressure environment where atoms crash together and create emit heat and light. And they create so much light and heat <coughs> that they can still burn us 93 million miles away and would destroy us if we ever got closer to it. That's what Jesus is. He's the brightness of God's glory. Looking at Jesus is like looking at the radiance of God's glory. I've always wondered, how did Jesus not kill people while he was on earth? I mean, the Old Testament says anyone looked on God, they would die because of the, his glory. It would, just, it would just kill them instantly. And here comes Jesus. He is the glory of God personified in human form. But he, he didn't kill people. He, he healed people. He has the brightness of God's glory. Look again at verse number three. And the express image of his person. He's using the the. The, 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 uh, the image here of a signet ring. He's talking about a signet ring. Now, <clears throat> and this time, if you wanted to seal a letter, you would melt wax on the seal and you would press a ring into it. That would let the recipient know who wrote the letter. And the wax showed an exact imprint of the ring so you know who sent the letter. Jesus is the exact imprint of the nature of God. Everything God is, Jesus is. So when you see Jesus, you see God. Jesus was completely different from every other prophet. He didn't just give us the word of God. He is the word of God. But look at verse 4 and 5. <coughs> Being made so much better, and I know I skipped part of verse 3. We're going to go back. Being so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they, for unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee, and again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So what he's saying here is Jesus is superior to all the prophets and all the angels because they were simply messengers. Jesus was the message. They gave the word of God. He is the word of God. They were servants he is the heir. They told us what the creator wanted. He is the creator. 
Now we're going to go back and look at that part of verse number three that I skipped. Look at verse number uh, Hebrews chapter one, verse three again. When he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. See, Jesus was not only fundamentally different in nature than all the prophets, he had a fundamentally different ministry. The prophets and the angels told man what they must do to be reconciled to God. Jesus did the work on our behalf to reconcile us to God. We saw this morning, he had the ministry of reconciliation. The prophets told us what to do. Jesus did what we couldn't. The prophets told us how to get righteous with God. Jesus, because we could never do it, did the work for us in our place. Jesus did the work on our behalf to reconcile us to God. He did for us what we could never do ourselves. He purged our sins. He did everything necessary to purge every one of our sins on our account, and then he sat down. Now, the Jewish people in the Old Testament, of course, they had the sacrificial system to cover their sins. <clears throat> it was a picture of what Jesus would do, but it was incomplete. Sacrifices were offered daily. Every family had to participate yearly. The priest was always standing by the altar. Imagine what the altar looked like after with the blood of hundreds of thousands of animals offered daily for hundreds of years. Jesus offered himself once and for all the perfect sacrifice for our sins. He died on the cross. He was buried. Three days later, he rose again to reconcile us to God the Father. He did all the work necessary, and then he sat down. There was nothing left to do. It was finished. He purged our sins forever, and it was done. The purpose of the first chapter is to teach us one simple truth. Jesus is better than all the prophets and all the angels. But why is Jesus better? A couple things tonight, we'll see why. First reason Jesus is better. They gave God's word. He is God's word. What the prophets pointed to, Jesus embodied perfectly. Everything in the Bible, from the Old Testament, everything, every word, every jot, every tittle, it has always been about Jesus. It has always pointed to Jesus. Every story in the, in the Old Testament, every psalm, every proverb, every command has been about him, pointing us to him. Here's what Tim Keller said. <clears throat> he said, Jesus <clears throat> is the truer and better Adam who, possessed the who passed the test in the garden and his obedience is now imputed to us. Jesus is the truer and better Isaac, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was actually sacrificed for us. Jesus is the truer and better Jacob, who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserved, so that we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace to wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is the truer and better Joseph who sits at the right hand of the king and forgives those who betrayed him and uses his new power to save them. Jesus is the truer and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the truer and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer who intercedes for his stupid friends. Jesus is the truer and better David whose 
victory became ours, even though we never lifted a stone to help him. He is the truer, truer and better Samson, crushed under the weight of the wicked world to conquer our enemies and save us. He is the truer and better Jonah, who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. He is the real Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain so that the angel of death can pass over us. <clears throat> He's a true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, and the true bread. See, in the end, the Bible isn't about you. See, we like it's about him. It has always been about him, and that changes how we read the Bible. See, we typically read the Bible as a collection, especially the Old Testament. Oh, it's a collection of stories about some great heroes of the faith that we should look at and emulate their life. You know, follow, follow God like Abraham. He left everything to follow God. Really? He lied about his relationship with his wife because he was a coward and didn't want, to get, get, didn't want people to beat him up, so he gave his wife to other men twice. Doesn't sound like something I want to do. Be like David. Defeat the giants in your life. David? Who slept with a woman, knocked her up, and then killed her husband to hide it? That, that doesn't sound like something we want to emulate. Be a leader like Nehemiah. You ever really read the book of Nehemiah? At the end, Nehemiah, he goes a little crazy. He gets mad because he doesn't like who the people are marrying. So he rips out their beards and cuts off their clothes. I don't think that's something we ought to be doing around here anymore. But be a leader like Nehemiah. There are a lot of things about these guys that you don't want to emulate. But we say, oh, they were given us to be examples. They were given to point us to a Savior. They were given to point us to a Savior to hope in and adore because it's always been about him. Jesus is better because he is the word of God. There's another reason Jesus is better than the prophets. They taught how to be reconciled to God. Jesus actually reconciled us to God. See, the prophets, they gave instructions on what you had to do to find peace with God. Jesus' message was about what he did to give us peace with God. See, he didn't stand and say, go and do he sat down and said, it is done. Religion teaches that if you obey enough, if you're good enough, you can be accepted. Jesus teaches you're accepted because of what he did. See, religion teaches if I, I obey, therefore I am accepted. Jesus teaches you're accepted, therefore you are to obey. That produces a different approach towards God. If you feel your obedience determines your acceptance before God, your life will be dominated by fear and guilt and despair. You'll fear you didn't do enough to be reconciled to God. You'll feel guilty because you know you aren't good enough and despair because you realize you can never be good enough. But if your acceptance is based on what Jesus has done for you, that produces assurance. Jesus is God. He's the creator He's a savior. He accomplished for us what we could never do. And then he sat down. Jesus is better than all the prophets and all the angels because he is the word of God and because he has done everything necessary to reconcile us to God. Now, the writer, he uses 
this truth to, to urge us to do two things. And that's how he closes out the introduction. The introduction of the book of Hebrews goes all the way through chapter 2. So my introductions aren't nearly that long, but his, his introduction goes all the way through chapter 2. So look at chapter number 2, verse number, uh, starting in verse number 1. Therefore, remember when you come to the word therefore, you've got to see what it's there for. So since Jesus is better than all the angels... Since Jesus is better than all the prophets, since Jesus is the word of God, since Jesus has done all the work of reconciliation, therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. So the writer, he's urging us to do two things. What's, what's he urging us to do? First thing he's urging us to do, don't neglect God's final word in Jesus. That's verse number three. Jesus didn't come to bring judgment. He came to absorb judgment in your place. He showed his love by taking the full wrath of God in your place. There's nothing more we can do but rest in him. So don't miss that Jesus came to do for you what you could never do. See, too many people, even in churches, are filled with people who think, I'm doing what I have to do to get to heaven. There's nothing you can do to get to heaven. There's nothing you could ever do. That's what the whole point of the prophets were, to say, you've got to do all these things, and us to look at it and say, that's impossible. We can never do it. And Jesus says, well, I can. So he left the glory of heaven, lived a perfect, sinless life. Look, he was tempted every way that we were, but he never sinned. Lived a perfect life, died on the cross a death we deserve to die. Three days went down and suffered the wrath of God, the wrath that we had to suffer. Then he rose again from the grave, defeating death and hell once and for all and proving that his sacrifice was accepted by God the Father. He did all the work. There's nothing more for us to do but accept his gift of salvation. He showed his love by taking the wrath of God. Rest in him. So first thing he says is don't neglect God's final word in Jesus. And secondly, don't drift away from Jesus. First of all, therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard. Let's say any time we should let them slip. People are prone to drift. The Bible in the Old Testament, prone to wander. You know, the song says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. It's very easy for us to drift from our walk with God. It's very easy for us to drift from our relationship with God. Why? Same reason Hebrew, people, Hebrew believers did. We're, we're hurt. We're confused. We're busy. We don't understand what's going on. And so we allow our affection to drift and we allow other things to steal it. And the Bible says because he's better than everything, don't drift from Jesus. We're prone to wander and there's no guarantee that everything is going to be great. If you're a follower of Christ and you walk with Jesus, life is not going to be easy. God never promised it. Prophets never said it. Matter of fact, the Bible says if you're going to walk with Jesus, you are going to suffer persecution. 
You will suffer. There will be testing. There will be trials. There will be difficulties. There's going to be temptations. There's going to be things that try to steal our affection. So the writer doesn't promise it's going to be good. He simply reminds us that Jesus is better than anything we could ever get on this earth. Jesus is better than the prophets and the angels. Jesus is better than anything and everything. Don't neglect what he did for you. And don't drift from your relationship with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father.